and welcome to another interview with In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Simon Brown, a host of the podcast and PhD candidate at UC Berkeley, and today I'm speaking with Andrew Bilou, Assistant Professor of History at Villanova University, about his new book, Tea War, A History of Capitalism in China and India, out from Yale University Press last year. His book traces how global markets shaped tea production in the 19th and early 20th century, and how those economic forces in turn set the conditions of possibility within which Chinese and Indian intellectuals and political economists imagined national development. We discuss agrarian labor and the history of capitalism, the universal aspirations of classical political economy and their critics, and the representation of economic abstractions in political and literary texts. I want to start by asking if you could talk a little bit about labor intensification and what it looks like in tea growing regions in Huizhou and the Wuyi Mountains. This process is important for you precisely because many of the commentators and political economists that you write about start from the premise that labor is not sufficiently productive or efficient among Chinese tea producers. So can you talk about what is going on with labor and tea production over the 19th century? Yeah, um, I do kind of think, I mean, that's a great question. I do kind of think we might need to back up just a little bit just to kind of contextualize the relationship between that and intellectual history. And by the way, I should say thank you for inviting me and thank you for, this is my first time talking about the intellectual history component of this book. I tend to uh, kind of spend so much time talking about the economic history arguments that there's ever no, there's never any time to discuss the the conceptual part of my, my argument. So to back up for just one second though, I think, you know, this book is trying to write, as the subtitle says, a history of capitalism in places like rural China and rural India that typically we don't associate with the history of capitalism. And the, the, the tea trade in particular was wildly commercially successful in these places. So in first class, you might think, oh, capitalism, commercial profits and so forth. Uh, but, but then when you look more deeply at the history and the historiography, these have typically been seen as not capitalist uh, because the model for capitalism is really about technological innovation, industrialization, large scale factories and so on. So I was kind of left with this problem of um, how do you kind of reconcile these two, this contradiction of obviously very profitable, tied up with the global economy, but also not um, develop, development, developed in the sort of classic models. So intellectual history is one of the ways to go about that. I mean, more broadly, I guess I would say is I'm, I'm trying to say that capitalism is not about the, we, we, sh we shouldn't fetish, fetishize technology. We should think about this underlying social dynamics that in many parts of the world did give rise to te technological innovation, but in many other parts of the world did not, but that doesn't mean they were untouched or unchanged. And I think I would put sort of China and India, you know, as part of that. Um, so, you know, you asked this question about labor intensification. I would say that, you know, I'm, what I'm trying to do throughout the book is to show that I, I'm, what I'm trying to avoid is a sort of old fashioned model of of intellectual sort of, of sort of socially grounded economically grounded intellectual history that almost has a sort of sequence involved right where first you have the economic changes and then you have the intellectual changes um the way i try to explain this is that you know there's these underlying social dynamics which produce pressures upon actors in china actors in india but also the british empire and so on and that gives rise both to changes in you know the production process the labor process how they made tea at this exact same time, it's giving rise to new concepts, new ideas um, about, you know, economic life in the economic world. Um, so to, just to briefly to then talk about um, what the, the I begin the book by looking more closely at, you know, how was tea being made in China? 
the classic model would suggest that um, the classic historiography of Chinese history, but I think deriving from European history would be that um, a truly capitalist society relies upon free wage proletarian labor, right? Labor that is neither uh, unfree, you know, slave or serf, but also labor that is not uh, landowning and independent. It has its force, uh, uh, the worker, you know, man, woman, child are forced to work in a factory, right? And what we see in India and in China throughout the book is you get these workers who don't fit that model at all. In China, for instance, you see um, a lot of the the tea gets grown on on people's own land and it gets processed, right? It's rolled, it's roasted, it's dried, it's packaged. In these workshops that pop up for only two or three months out of the year, the workforce, you know, needless to say, doesn't have health insurance or any sort of official documentation. They're just seasonal, casual migrant workers from maybe 100 miles away. And because of, uh, and often there's a gender division of labor. It's often in one scenario, there's like men who know each other. Another scenario, it's like men and women who know each other from the same town. And I think in the 21st century, this is quite recognizable to us. It's sort of like seasonal migrant labor, right? But I think for the classic model of the mid-20th century, this is seen as less than fully proletarianized. It's semi-proletarianized, and therefore it shouldn't give rise to the developmental patterns that that the English Industrial Revolution, for instance, had, right? The classic argument would be, um, I mean, this is kind of in, in your world, right? Robert Brenner talking about early modern England, that only England had fully proletarianized labor that gave rise to the necessary market pressures that led to industrialization. In places like China, there was some proletarianization, but it wasn't full proletarianization. And so you had just super exploitation of family, or you had super exploitation, obviously, of slave and serf labor and so on. Um, so according to that model, there shouldn't be dynamism. There shouldn't be uh, a, speed, a speeding up of production. There shouldn't be greater output over time. Um, and recently in, in Chinese history and East Asian studies, there's been a, a renewed focus on this concept of labor-intensive uh, development or industrialization, which is to say, and also in um, early modern Europe with Jan de Vries at Berkeley. Uh, and the argument is that, um, you know, the classic model of industrialization is capital-intensive, meaning you use money to make machines, to use la- to use labor-replacing tools. Um, uh by contrast, in East Asia, which was poor than Western Europe at this time, and also had far more people than Western Europe at this time, um, they just increased output, increased you know production of tea for the world market by having more workers work harder, make them work longer, and over time, you not only see greater output at the same you know average rate of uh, of product productivity, but also I think increased productivity, signs of increased productivity, signs of managers and, and and workshop managers trying to raise the productivity of the workforce. This to me is indicative of a very modern social dynamic, like in a capitalist factory, um, despite the fact right that you don't have this sort of proletarian model um, of of early modern England. Um, so you know, I'll, I'll, you know I'll, I think that's like the basic set up and and I think tied to that then is something else is going on. Some sort of underlying social dynamic has transformed that helps inform an intellectual history account as well. And that leads kind of to the to the intellectual history component here somewhat, where um you talk about the kind of the origins of theories about kind of differential development or um kind of radical differences between the English and the uh and 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 non-English context in both India and China. So I wanted to ask a bit about um, what you describe as this kind of crisis of liberalism in the middle of the 19th century, uh, where particularly 
British colonial administrators and political economists working in India, uh, and some cases invested in Assam, in tea production in Assam uh, after 1857, really turn away from the idea that the political economy and the principles that they subscribe to uh, actually apply in a place like India. And it seems to be a kind of a turning away from some of the universal principles of political economy. Um, but you also show that people who are kind of embracing this line of critique are still doing and still thinking about political economy in similar ways. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about how this crisis of liberalism actually changes political economy on the part of these thinkers? Yeah, uh, yeah. Let me try to um, you know pack a lot of th- pack a lot of uh, different different important concepts right into this answer. Um, throughout the book, I'm engaging with what I call the tradition of British political economy, basically Adam Smith to Karl Marx, right, for 1770s, 1860s. And I think that I'm not just interested in it as a sort of application of abstract theory to concrete history. It's because uh, specifically in India, we see um, actual British colonial officials in Assam, which becomes a tea growing region of India, wrestling with the categories. In fact, we know there's a long history of how East India Company officials all throughout the 18th and 19th century, we're using British political economy as their guide to understand India, and then how they had all sorts of, you know, uh, uh, un, unsurprisingly, lots of failures or mistakes along the way. Um, at the same time, in later chapters, I also talk about how there are Chinese thinkers who were specifically reading the tradition of British political economy, not Adam Smith in particular. This is like a translation of John Stuart Mill's um, um, disciple Henry Fawcett, who I had to figure out who that was. Um, so I'm engaging. So I'm trying to make sure that the reader knows, like, I'm not just applying, you know, abstract theory. I'm trying to engage with the actual intellectual history of these thinkers, but also through that as a point of departure, right? Get into the these broader historiographical debates. Um, so let me. So sorry. The other thing I want to do is kind of back up and also explain another kind of argument about sort of the what I mean by social dynamic and 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 how to, how to account for how to use that to account for history of capitalism through intellectual history. So again, as I was mentioning before, the kind of typical account was that, you know, wage labor is important because it leads sort of in a mechanical way to pressures towards industrialization. And I think that is one particular reading of Marx that has some validity and and is very truthful and useful in many ways. I think there's a new or newer, let's say, rereading of Marx that I find a lot more inspirational. Uh, Some of these authors include... Uh, for instance, Diane Elson, Jairus Banaji, and Moish Postone, and his student Andrew Sartori, who I work with at in NYU. And they've tried to make this argument that what Marx was saying about wage labor wasn't just that wage labor creates these sort of social, almost like pressures to force people to industrialize, which is kind of a functionalist account. It's more that when wage labor becomes generalized in society, that changes the way that we think about wealth. Right, so the old, the old-fashioned ideas of wealth, and this, I think, this is true in many societies. Although the Western European story is the most famous, is people would say like, "Well, how much is something worth? What is the basis for how much, where, where, where our money in society comes from?" The old-fashioned ideas would be it comes from the land, it comes from trade, maybe some other ideas as well, right? But with Adam Smith onwards, uh, this was, you know, Adam Smith might may or may not be the first, to, but he was kind of the one associated with this classical idea that it's actually about labor. Right. And why is that the case? Well, for Marx, the argument was something like at some point it, it becomes the case that in in in, a, in this commercial society where people are buying and selling goods and making goods for each other, 
labor itself becomes the thing that is uh, that is bought and sold and becomes the sort of universal basis for how much uh, something is worth. And so the substance of wealth, if you want to talk about like the, not just the quantity, but the quality of wealth, changes from land and trade to labor. And it's not just agricultural labor, which is a very old idea. It's this general idea of labor because at a certain point in certain societies, right, labor becomes wage labor and wage labor is not just used for the land. It's used to like make, you know, anything from, uh, you know, like lawyer documents to professorial books to, you know, cigarettes, right? So general labor that Adam Smith comes up with is a reflection of Adam Smith living in a society where labor has become generalized, has become waged, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then, sorry, there's a lot, there's a few other wrinkles, but I, I don't want to go into all of them, but the other one is that we're not saying, we're not saying that, uh, or the, the argument isn't so much that everyone is a wage worker all the time, right? The term in, that you will find in Marx is that labor becomes the universal form, but that word universal, you know, in German, if you kind of go back to the original, it would be something like allgemeine, and allgemeine could be universal, it could also mean general. And when we look at what Marx says elsewhere, General for him, and this is kind of a Hegelian concept, right? General doesn't mean that each and every one of us is always a wage laborer constantly working for wages. It's just that it is the general form such that even when we're not working for wages, we are thinking about ourselves as wage workers. And the example I think is that kind of illustrates that is, you know, in the 21st century, we will often decide, do we want to buy our dinner or do we want to cook it for ourselves? And even when we cook dinner for ourselves, we're technically not um, engaging in a commercial transaction, but in our head, we're probably mentally calculating, you know, what is the opportunity cost of time spent um, purchasing someone else's labor versus using our own labor and saving, uh, saving our, or, you know, we're saving some money, but we're using up our own time. Is it more efficient for me to cook my own dinner than to like do an extra job for somebody else and so on? So we see traces of that um, happening in many societies where wage labor seems to be Maybe not quantitative. Maybe it's not quantitatively dominant. Maybe not everyone is a wage worker, but as more and more people are leaning upon some sort of waged work, and it could be done in their household. It could be done only one month out of the year. It could be done on a very casual basis, um, where that logic of constantly calculating um, money and value and economic uh, activity according to you know the time you're you're spent selling to other people, right? Gradually, we see that human labor itself becomes the substance and measure of value. So all of this is to say that when we have this definition, that all sorts of different forms of labor, um, not just the free proletarian labor, but also peasant labor, indentured, unfree labor, et cetera, can be brought into this history of capitalism. So what happens, so to, to finally get back to your original question, right? So in Assam, what happens is um, Assam is this area in Northeast India where the British uh, East India Company officials want to grow a tea industry to compete with China. They try to create a tea industry from, quote unquote, from scratch. Um, but over the years, they discover that just because they've opened up business to create these tea plantations does not mean that uh, the locals, the local Assamese people who are very accustomed to just kind of living and working on their own land are willing to work for them. So this leads to a sort of um, soul searching on the part of a lot of British colonial officials. And this corresponds to this moment in colonial Indian history, which historians have kind of called this sort of the historicist turn, where figures like Henry Maine 
um, are, are trying to figure out how India is not actually England, how India has these different social conditions of England, than England. And the officials I look at, they're looking at Henry Maine. They're also looking at Edward Wakefield. Um, and these are theorists in the 19th century who would say like places like India, Australia, the United States, they're not England because England for several centuries has already had a steady labor force that is available to be hired to do things like grow tea. Places like these other, like the United States, you know, the, the, the history we're familiar with in the United States, there was not, there weren't millions of people just dying to grow cotton for somebody else. They had to enslave an unfree workforce. So something similar happens in Assam where they, uh, it's not slavery as such, but it's a very, very obvious form of unfree labor that British colonial officials um, authorize for British capitalist tea planters to use to recruit a workforce. And uh, so in many ways, uh, this this attempt this this sort of soul searching by the colonial officials. On the one hand, they're saying Assam, India is different than England. We have to use unfree labor because this is different than England. On the other hand, they are kind of reaching the same conclusion that, for instance, Adam Smith did, which is that um, you know, or Adam Smith and the classical economist did, which is that the substance of value in a capitalist society, in a society governed by the exchange of commodities is human labor. And just because we have land, just because we have commercial networks, just because we have everything else you need to set up a, a, a successful economic industry um, does not mean you're going to actually produce profit unless you get labor. Um, so this, you know, is obviously for those who've read um, Capital by Marx, by Karl Marx, right? The, this is kind of the last chapter of Capital where he talks about Edward Wakefield has unintentionally discovered the sort of tr- the secret of classical political economy that the, su- the substance that makes an economy grow is not land or money, it is labor itself. Mm-hmm. Right. So in that sense, it's what looks like, and what, what, what is in the part of a lot of these kind of critics of classical political economy, what looks like a real challenge to it and challenge the ideas of its, of its first principles and its abstractions actually kind of emerges out of its suppositions, right? It actually, this, this assertion of the need for a certain kind of colonial um, kind of forced labor actually proceeds from it, even though they themselves kind of explicitly say, what we're doing is something very different. We're not engaging in the kind of abstraction that, uh, that Smith does and, and so forth. I, I, so I want to ask about one thing that you also mentioned in, in the process of uh, describing kind of the application of Smith, which is that mm-hmm. you know, as people like as these British political economists are turning away explicitly or kind of explicitly di- di- differing themselves from what they take to be the universal assumptions of classical political economy, you also show how later in the 19th century it is thinkers and political economists in China and in India who are embracing those universal principles. Um, and you talk about the case in the Qing political administration of Chen Qi, Chen Qi, who on one hand explicitly yeah. himself talks about Smith and talks about the political economic tradition. But you say that him simply reading it or citing it is not enough to explain why it is that he thought it applied to that moment. So can you talk a bit about why it was that, um, this is kind of follows it from your last answer, why it was that someone like Chen Qi thought that yeah. Smith could guide Qing political economy? Yeah, so the initial impetus for reading this Qing, kind of basically anonymous bureaucrat, some people have heard of him, but most people haven't, 
uh, Chen Shi is that he wrote this. So the, the tea industry in China goes under this crisis because of the threat of Indian tea production. By the 1890s, the industry is has plummeted. The trade has plummeted. And there's a lot of soul searching, again, in this case, soul searching by Chinese officials, Qing officials. And uh, he writes this long memorial to the emperor that says we need to fix the tea trade by doing this, this and this kind of a very standard list of ways to basically industrialize tea production in a way that's very predictive of the 20th century you know, economic thought. Now, looking closer at what Chen Shi was doing, he writes this long memorial. It's at the exact same moment. He is one of the earliest people in China to attempt to interpret and translate British political economy. Um, as I just I mentioned, you know, about 10 minutes ago, right, that. Uh, it's he's reading there's this is kind of this like forgotten history of there's almost like a literary history of there's a book that I don't think any of us know anymore but it was like a best-selling textbook in the 19th century called like principles of political economy by Henry Fawcett who was a Cambridge economist who was a disciple of John Stuart Mill and John Stuart Mill at this point is I don't think he's a brilliant economist I think if anything he's useful because he encapsulates the common sense of what British uh, the field of British political economy looked like by the 1840s and 50s. So he's indir- so indirectly, Chen Shi is being exposed to Adam Smith's ideas, and this is before I believe the the very in Chinese history there's a very famous translation of Adam Smith by uh, a scholar named Yan Fu in 1900. This is before that, right? So this is this very early forgotten history of British political economy in translation. And yeah, this question of this the, the question your question is getting at this this problem of you know plausibility and this is something i'm getting from andrew sartori who if um you know if listeners are curious he has an essay that directly addresses this in the volume global intellectual history and how to write about political economy intellectual history and i think it's the question that i think is one that is important for the for those who want to you know go beyond the text and think about well ideas travel but the real question is why do ideas stick right why it's very possible that Chen Shi could have read john stuart mill and said yeah, but this doesn't apply because we're not England, right? And that's basically what happened in Assam, as I mentioned 10 minutes ago, right? They read, there was this kind of movement against the universality of political economy in Assam or in, you know, in India, in colonial India. In China, by contrast, you have the opposite. You have this Qing official reading um, British political economy, talking about how the substance of value is human labor. And they're saying, they're just nodding along. They're like, this is great. This explains everything. This is exactly how we are going to, win back the tea trade and we're going to win back the silk trade and we're going to compete on the global market again. So then the question is like, well, how, do, how does Chen Shi, how do these Qing officials see themselves as analogous to 19th, 18th century Britain if all existing historiography has basically told us that China is not Britain, right? It, it, you know, in the sort of Brunerian vein, it's, it's not developmentalist. It doesn't have proletarian labor. It doesn't have technology and so on. So again, this gets back to this question of what what did he see in common with Adam Smith? And it was, it gets back to this question I was saying earlier of that, that he believed that China was a society in which, especially the commercialized parts of China, in which most people depended upon the sale of labor embodied in the commodities that they put up for sale um, as part of their livelihood. And society and wealth was not the byproduct of trade or it's simply the byproduct of agricultural labor in particular, it was the byproduct of labor in general. So um, to just give readers, listeners a little bit of context, in, I do a kind of a deep dive into this kind of obscure field of Chinese economic thought in the 18th and 19th century, where a lot of simil- there are a lot of similarities with, I think, a lot of the world. I, you know, I also kind of read broadly to think about this comparatively. 
again, the European story is the most famous where you famously have like the mercantilists of the 1600s, 1700s who believe that trade is, or wealth is basically metal from trade. Then you have the physicrats of France who say wealth is only derived from the land. And then you have Adam Smith, right? Saying, no, it's just labor. In a lot of parts of the world, um, because of the, all this new research on early modern history in the last 20, 30 years, people are discovering that the world was just a lot more commercialized and uh, it was, an agric- was agriculturally commercial, I guess, is the phrase, um, and not just Western Europe, in Asia, in Africa, in uh, the Middle East, and so on. So it's not a surprise that if you do a little bit of a deep dive, then in Japan, in the Ottoman Empire, in China, in India, you have 18th, 19th century thinkers coming up with, I don't want to say Smithian, but maybe Smith-esque, Smith-like concepts here and there, and it's at the same time as Smith. Um, and so what I what I kind of discovered is, you know, and, and so you have this sort of mercantilist-like and physiocrat-like ideas floating around in China in the 19th century that Chen Chi is repudiating and is saying this idea that wealth comes from trade, that's wrong because that ignores production. This idea that wealth comes from the land is not entirely wrong, but it's not entirely correct because it's not just agricultural labor, it's all labor that produces wealth. So he's kind of going through a lot of the same moves that Adam Smith and all the British political economists did, which was to repudiate land and trade-based wealth. And then the final thing I want to add is like this kind of this point I make throughout the book that like we can only know so much through this kind of line of inquiry. Like what is the sequence and stage and the, and the mechanism by which these ideas get formed? I don't want to suggest that, oh, just because you live in a capitalist society, you will be Adam Smith, right? Like all of us live in a capitalist society, probably anyone listening to this, and you probably do not understand all of Adam Smith. I don't think I understand all of Adam Smith. So the phrase, I think the phrase that's appropriate is this idea of conditions of possibility, which is to say that Adam Smith's ideas, living in a capitalist society does not automatically produce Adam Smith's ideas, but Adam Smith's ideas would not be possible for someone not living in a capitalist society. So it's not that A plus B always equals C. It's just that C is impossible with A plus B. So all this really proves at a very minimal level is that Chen Shi lived in a society governed by the sale and purchase of labor, market-dependent labor in many different forms, family labor, um, gender labor, um, seasonal labor, that was analogous to the world that Adam Smith was describing, right? And and that's 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 the basic claim. It's not a claim about development or technological um, in, innovation or anything like that beyond that. Right. And that was one of the things that I found really interesting uh, from what you said and from what you wrote about these kind of possibilities for comparison or or even if not comparison, these these possibilities for analyzing different political economic traditions as somehow analogous or as congruent because of the material conditions. And one of the things I found interesting was your discussion about physiocracy and how we can think about French physiocrats of the 18th century and we can think about uh, Qing political economists around the same time as really engaging with the same questions about, as you said, kind of commercial agriculture. Um, and it, it did, it lead, led to one of the, an interesting moment that you cite um, Kenet, the French physiocrat economist, yeah. explicitly emulated totally. uh, Qing, the, the Qing agriculture and said France ought to aspire to it. So it's, it opens up this possibility for a different direction of emulation than what we usually think of with political economy. So I don't know if you want to say anything more about kind of the possibilities for, um, yeah, com- a comparison beyond just um, yeah. 
uh, reception, I guess, of political economy that's allowed by your approach? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, I want to emphasize, I've never taken a class on intellectual history in my life, so I'm not uh, exactly sure if your listeners, uh, I'm on the same wavelength as a lot of your listeners, but I would say, but I was always interested in these questions of theory and the relationship between theory and history. And my assumption is that there is a sort of old-fashioned intellectual history approach that would just be like very logocentric, like very much it's all about what's in the text. And so when we read political economy, it's about like what's on page XYZ of Kenei or, you know, the tableau economique or whatever, right? Um, and my approach kind of coming in from the other side, which is like how does – how do social – it's not so I don't want to what I'm obviously trying to avoid is a functionalist account a, a, a functionalist Marxist account of ideas which is to say something like the ruling class has these ideas and they come up with these ideas in order to make a lot of money and therefore why do certain ideas become dominant is because it benefits the ruling class like that might be true in a lot of the cases it probably is true in a lot of the cases right mm-hmm. but it becomes a sort of non-falsifiable conspiracy theory in many ways and so mm-hmm. And and this is something that you know um, Andrew Andrew's book the first book kind of goes to lengths to kind of kind of break down the tradition of Marxist intellectual history in, in Indian history where you have this sort of class based notion of intellectual history where he's more interested in this idea of capitalism as a social form and if capitalism is thought of not as the sort of functionalist thing that kind of A produces B produces C but rather that capitalism has a certain form that is mirrored in 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 our everyday activities but also in our minds then we kind of take away this question of directionality like is it the mind or the you know, chicken or the egg that comes first and we just kind of tell a history of like well these certain ideas correspond to certain social formations and we can't really say you know as historians there's a lot we don't know about the past right our best guess is that these things match mm-hmm. up but we can't really say like which one caused the other the concept that uh kind of gets thrown around that, but but that that is sort of um, associated with this idea is the idea of real abstraction in, in Marxist thought, which is to say that, mm-hmm. you know, why, why do we come up with, um, it's not it's not that there are, uh, so the idea of real abstraction is sort of in an everyday life, in economic life, in capitalist society, we are constantly buying and selling goods, and therefore we are engaged in very abstract ideas, very abstract activities, right? When I use a dollar bill to buy a coffee, and then you know, I also use the same dollar bill to buy like a computer. That's a very abstract comparison that I don't think twice about, right? Um, it's not as though like we first we wake up and have these abstract thoughts and then we put them into per- put them into practice. It's also not uh, just that like we do these things and then we come up with the thoughts later on. It's just that these things are constantly simultaneous in a capitalist society. So I think along the same lines, um, the the sort of tradition that I'm, what this tradition is kind of pointing towards then is that we don't want to take the text too seriously. These, what these texts are doing are they're, being, they're symptomatic of a deeper social form uh, tr- or transformation in the social form, you know, that I'm specifically looking at, like from a commercial capitalist to an industrial capitalist and, and so on and so forth, types of transformations. And those can be detected, right? Those are, they leave uh, traces of evidence in the historical archive, both in terms of, let's say, mm-hmm. what, we, what we might traditionally call a social labor history of like, you know, looking at business records and how things were manifest in, in those types of evidence. Or they could also be left behind in terms of the thoughts that people had and the kind of publications that people happen to uh, be able to, to publish in their lifetime and without necessarily prioritizing one or the other. Right. And, you know, again, I think I was always interested in th- this theoretical, these theoretical debates 
but I could almost phrase my approach as sort of turning to intellectual history as a backup plan, right? Because I couldn't find the clear evidence that China actually had an industrial revolution that doesn't exist, right? But what does exist are traces of a deeper transformation that could be found not exclusively in intellectual history, but in, in, in many other ways. And intellectual history is just like a very useful way, I think, to um, useful and uh, uh, yeah, it's just a useful way to kind of get at that question um, and to get around the sort of, well, where's the steam engine? Where's the, you know, where's the 2000 person workforce that, that, that we associate capitalism with. Right. And that gets, that, that gets to the next question I wanted to ask about kind of where you find um, those mentalities, where you find those traces of, of capitalist development. And, and one of the places that you, you analyze at length is in your chapter on particularly Indian nationalist critiques of the labor regime in Assam. Uh, you talk, you, you read not just political economy and kind of what we'd think of as straightforwardly political texts, but also novelistic accounts and fictional accounts uh, that decry what they take to be um, a very unjust indentured labor system in Assam. Um, and you read yeah. uh, texts like uh, Ramakumar Vidyaratna's uh, a book on, as he calls, Cooley Life, um, and you and you and you you see some of these concepts emerge from a text like that too. Things like the commodity fiction, as as Marx describes, and kind of as you were describing yeah. about how people think about about yeah. commodities. So, can you just talk about how how you find these? economic concepts in texts that look very different and have very different forms from kind of political economy as we know yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so the, this is the second to last chapter, I believe. It's kind of the last chapter about the Indian tea industry where I've kind of established in earlier chapters that the Indian tea industry, for just from like an economic history perspective, it eventually thrives very much by the late 19th century primarily because they use a very unfree labor system uh, that's known as penal contract or indentured labor. Uh, and then by the, and that is something that's very like decided one-sidedly by the you know white British colonial administration. By the turn of the 20th century, you have Indian nationalists who protest this system, who protest what they call a new form of slavery um, in Assam. And this is brought part of a broader historiography of uh, Indian nationalism. And, there wasn't, you know, and so for this chapter, I was interested in like, you know, I, I just didn't want to look at what British people were saying. I wanted to see like, well, where were the Indian, where were the Bengali uh, people saying? So, you know, I, I read, uh, there wasn't a lot of political tracks, right? The stuff that this, the, 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 but these were very political novels and plays that I read. Um, and reading through them, um, there is, there is a, so you have novels, you have plays that just kind of depict the enslavement, especially of female Indian coolies. Uh, on these tea plantations. And there's a particular reading that's already out there that's kind of a post-colonial reading that would say something like, these novels are depicting natives as backwards and um, too traditional and especially women are being punished um, for you know entering into contracts to work in these tea gardens, right? I think that's probably a valid reading of some of this literature, but I also kind of was seeing something else when I was reading this literature, which was that there was this huge emphasis all throughout this literature on freedom, the concept of freedom, which is in Bengali is something like Shadinoto. And uh, I was trying to figure out like why that was like the key word that kind of popped out, especially in this novel I read. And I was trying to figure out like, how do I place this? How do I make sense of this? And 
the Indian nationalists themselves were making comparisons between the nationalist movement and abolitionism in the United States. Uh, and they called, you know, this novel, Kuli Kahini, the stories of sketches of Kuli life, uh, their version of Uncle Tom's Cabin. So then I started thinking comparatively, like, well, what is going on with abolitionism, which is only like 20, 30 years earlier than this Indian nationalist movement. And for there, you know, it's actually the intellectual historian, Thomas Holt, his account of um, abolitionism in, in Jamaica, but probably the United States uh, context as well, that kind of was helpful. He kind of was pointing out that abolitionism is a... Um, Abolition, abolitionism is not against capitalism. It's not against capitalist labor. It just draws a distinction between bad capitalist labor, which is unfree and, and slave-like, versus good capitalist labor, which is free, right? So freedom is championed on the grounds that it is a naturalized social form, which is a naturalized version of capitalist labor. So then, that, again, that led me to think, like, well, then what is going on in Assam and with these Indian nationalists who are talking about Assam and the tea plantations? We have to go beyond the text. And that's when I start to think about well, what is going on with the economy of Bengal more generally, where these writers are coming from? And then that's where I kind of discover, well, there was a lot of talk at this time by the Indian nationalists themselves that uh, a lot of Indian industries were thriving and they wanted those Indian industries to thrive. They thought that it would benefit the local population for them to engage in, I believe, like um, coal mining was a big industry. Jute was a big industry in Calcutta. And they, so they're, in their minds, there's like a distinction between good capitalist industry, which is free, such as those, versus bad capitalist industry, which is unfree, which is the tea plantation. And so, again, this is to, to bring the, and then to bring this back or to zoom out then, like the question then becomes like, how do you read this literature as symptomatic of deeper economic and social transformations? Well, I think this literature is a rejection of the tea plantations as unfree, but it's also a championing and an embrace of capitalist industry that is historically specific. In other words, I don't think this would have been written 70, 80 years earlier in the history of Eastern India. Um, and so then this, you know, so it, it is by going sort of outside of the text, reading social economic history or reading newspaper accounts that are drawing these kind of good versus bad distinctions that the, that the novels um, made more sense. And then this raises, raises the question of like, well, why exactly is, are these Indian nationalists, why do they think capitalism, capitalist industry is actually a system of freedom, of free labor? And there, you know, I do kind of, I think along the same lines as Thomas Holt, right, kind of draw upon Marx's critique that uh, capitalism is fundamentally a system of, uh, in the private sort of hidden realm of production of, of coercion and power, but in the private outward facing sort of um, realm of appearances to the outside world, it's a marketplace of freedom and exchange and so on. Um, and so, you know, I draw upon those aspects of Marx, the sort of phen phenomenological critique that the world appears as one way, but is actually, if you look at the contradictions, is something else. And um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, and that's kind of the, the story, the sort of story of how I kind of began to learn to uh, learned or kind of came to my interpretation of how that novel fits within a broader um, sort of history of capitalism. Great, and that and that gets us to the other nationalist literature that you talk about near the end of the book, specifically um, the the critique by Chinese nationalists and also by Chinese communists against uh, the uh, kind of the figure of the comprador, who uh, in in their critique represents a certain kind of a certain kind of capitalist that is somehow less developed and less invested in the public interest of of the nation. Um, and you describe this in a, I think, very kind of evocative way is it's it's taking a an economic difference between 
the, uh, you know, the, the economic position of the mer of the merchant and making it a temporal difference to say this merchant somehow represents yeah. an older period of development. Um, and because it represents an older period, it represents a kind of a stultifying force in the Chinese economy. Uh, so I wanted to ask yeah. you about kind of how that dynamic works and how that maybe gets us to some of the assumptions you're trying to resist about that people have had about the lack of labor intensification, the lack of capitalism in a country like mm. China in the Qing period. Yeah. I'm actually curious, before you read that chapter, were, had you heard the phrase comfortable before? This is like a survey I'm running. No, you had not. I can't say I, I, I'd heard, I probably had encountered it in like early modern yeah. political economy texts maybe, but I never yeah. registered, so yeah. Really modern is probably too early. What I had kind of found, I did like a survey and you can see my footnotes like cite so many people because I was basically asking everyone I knew. Had you heard this phrase before? Because in an earlier era, like the mid 20th century really circulated. There are books about the Ottomans, about Latin America, about Africa, Zanzibar, I think, uh, in India where the comprador analogy is used. But I think it's a Chinese analogy in origin. Um, so just to give listeners a little bit of context, the word comprador I believe it's Portuguese in origin, right? It means to, to purchase, comprar, this is Spanish. Um, and it dates from the 18th century um, it, with the creation of the Canton trade when Europeans, including the Portuguese, were trading with China. And it just basically meant a merchant, right? To someone who buys and sells things. And it later took on this meaning of someone who's a Chinese merchant in particular, or native merchant, right? Quote, unquote, native merchant who buys and sells things with Europeans. And in Chinese, the phrase would be my ban. Um, and then by the 20, and it had a very kind of neutral, sometimes even positive, sometimes slightly negative meaning. But by the 20th century, for those who are familiar with like communist um, Chinese like writing or, or art and representation, it really is seen as a negative thing. And I point out, actually, uh, a friend of mine, Ariel Fox at Chicago pointed out to me that the very famous film in the 60s called The East is Red, which is the sort of self-mythology of the Communist Party, um, about how bad China was before the communist revolution opens with a scene of a comprador and a like a, basically a, a white guy with a with a mustache and a beard, evil mustache and beard, um, exploiting China. Right, so they were the bad guys, and they were and and they were men, um, and they were. The, I think the phrase is like I think the phrase the operative phrase is they were parasitic, right? Which is to say that they profited personally, but it was by sucking the lifeblood out of China. That was the stereotype of the comprador. But to me, kind of doing this history of the tea trade from the 19th to 20th century, what really struck me is, and especially from the standpoint of someone looking at the new trends in Chinese historiography, I think this is this gets us at a real um, question of Chinese history, but historiography more generally, which is to say that, you know, there's been a lot of new research on early, the early modern world, including, you know, your field of the last few decades, where people have rethought the early modern world as quite dynamic and merchants were seen as good and or not good, but like sort of prototypes of the modern hero, heroes of economic history in the later period. And that's exactly what the comforters were in the 18th and 19th century. And if you look at 18th and 19th century Chinese history, merchants are seen as good or seen as protagonists. So why is it by the 20th century, and this is quite abrupt, basically from 1900 to 1920, they go from the good guys to the bad guys. Um, and I've, because by the 20th century, industrialization, um, and not trade is seen as the centerpiece of economic life. So I think that's a question that China historians, but historians more generally, have to kind of wrestle with. Like there is something happening, um, and that 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 of that more than or along with many other changes, right, is indicative of this sort of break that we might call you know modern life or whatever. 
Um, and so why does the comforter become seen as a bad guy, as a parasite by the 20th century? The most obvious explanation that is in historiography is that, well, this is part of anti-imperialist, nationalist um, propaganda or ideology, especially by the Communist Party. And I think that's obviously part of it, right? That's part of the story. But there's a few quirks that arise. One thing is that if you look at the actual um, um, literature, the comprador kind of, or the, the the foreign merchant, Chinese merchant, starts to be seen negatively before the sort of anti comprador literature really emerges. So like it, like starting in the 1920s, mm. it, begets, it begins to be seen as a negative figure. But beyond that, the people who are criticizing the comprador are not just Chinese writers and not just Chinese nationalists. There are Japanese writers, there are American writers, there are English writers. So they have no investment in Chinese nationalism as such, right? Um, so there does seem to be some transformation that takes place where the comprador kind of seems to be objectively bad, objectively outdated. So what is what is what is the conditions under which that happens? So the argument I make is that this is we're kind of looking at this kind of transitional moment where you know, I, I argue at the beginning of the book that China was bound up in a system we might call something like commercial capitalism, where production for the market takes place, but the upper hand is held by the merchants. By the 20th century, the merchants still have the upper hand in China, but that's now seen as a bad thing because for many parts of the world, especially, you know, Euro-America and places like Japan, uh, it is increasingly the norm that uh, economic power should be held by industrialists and producers and labor in particular. It could be a communist who valorizes labor. It could be a pro-capitalist who valorizes, you know, capital. Um, and it's not just like a value system. We're talking about like objectively the the societies in the world that have industrialized are, uh, you know, are, are impoverishing the societies in the world that have not industrialized. So it's not a value system. It's just an objective economic fact. So that, I, so to me, this is indicative of the fact that China in the 1920s and 30s, by any real, I don't know, physical or technical measure, is not an industrial society. But people in China are beginning to internalize the perspective and the norms and the assumptions of an industrial society, which is that, again, the center of economic life is production and labor, and labor is the basis of wealth. And those who are simply moving things around, trading them, financing them, they are second, third orders of the economic life. And if they are profiting, but the Chinese peasant is not profiting or the Chinese industrialist is not profiting, that's a problem, right? And that means that the Chinese comprador is now a parasite. Uh, so that's so to use like probably crude and simplistic and academic language, we see a real tension here between the worldview of merchant and commercial capital on the one hand versus 20th century industrial capital on the other hand. Um, and again, this kind of draws upon um, John Bonaggi in particular has written about how when economic historians use the 20th century to think about the 18th and 19th century, they're kind of they're, that's anachronistic, right? Because by the 20th century, the worldview of industrial capital has kind of has taken hold, and by that that would be anachronistic to apply that to earlier periods. Um, and we see the comforter then basically as this living anachronism, as a sort of old-fashioned merchant that has not really changed in terms of what he does on a day-to-day -day basis, but the world around him has changed. Um, the world around China has changed and the world in China has changed. Uh, and the last thing I want to say on that really quickly is that 
I think a lot of this stuff is now visible to us in the 21st century because the 21st century has really witnessed a resurgence of merchant and commercial capital. We talk about globalization supply chains where it's about, you know, the uh, the United States retailers have more power over the factories and the industrialists in China who are making our clothes and our shoes and our computers, right? So the resurgence of merchant capital over industrial capital makes the historicity, right, the historical contingency of 20th century industrial capital more readily apparent, I think, to us. Right. And I think that that really nicely takes us back to the kind of the beginning of when we just what we discussed, where we talked about the the disjuncture between the economic conditions on the ground and some of the intellectual representations of that by the 20th century. So I think that that, yeah, that really takes us through a good cycle of the book. And before uh, we go, I just wanted to ask you about what else you might be working on now, or if you're working on a new project. Yeah, so I think my second or the next project, as I'm envisioning, it really does take off from this first project, which is that as I was uh, conceptualizing this first project and looking for ways to rethink capitalism, right, um, it really struck me that we have this historiographical reimagination of what capitalism is that is helping me understand the 18th and 19th century. But that's also probably because of transformations in global capitalism in our own time, right? Like, I, like as I just mentioned, right, the sort of provincialization of industrial capitalism um, in the 20th century is a result of the transformations from sort of a to a post-industrial capitalism, at least in the United States, for instance, or in the, you know, the quote-unquote developed world. Um, and so I became, and as I was especially interested in this fact that it's scholars of Asia who are kind of leading the way on this. So my next project is trying to investigate this sort of mythological transformation and rise of Asia in the 1970s and 80s, which a lot of social scientists have looked at and they've said they've looked at places like Japan or the Four Tigers or South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, and most obviously now China, where it seems like, again, production for the world market is happening. You have, you know, the new workshop of the world is in China, but it doesn't look the way it was supposed to look when it was the United States as a leader of the global economy. And in fact, all this talk about, you know, um, industrious revolutions and labor intensive industrialization the examples that these social scientists come up with, like Sugihara uh, Kaoru, the Japanese economist, most famously, he kind of takes 19th century Asian economic history and then jumps to like 1970s Japan. And that to me was kind of signaling maybe um, after, you know, exhausting my attention span on the 19th century, I should kind of turn to what is going on in the 1970s and 80s itself. Uh, so that's the, that's the broad contours. I'm interested in making it, you know, ultimately connected to Chinese history, but also expanding beyond Chinese history, looking at what is the influence of um, the rest of East Asia, uh, because East Asia, Japan and East Asia became industrialized and economically powerful in the 60s and 70s, prior to China starting in the 80s and the 90s. Um, so I'm kind of looking at that, that period, that part of the world, and trying to figure out ways to place the story of the rise of China within a region, the East Asia or the Asia Pacific region, which also involves the United States. I'm trying to figure this out. There's a lot of lot, a lot of parts going on, but I think it is a natural extension of the intellectual um, kind of discoveries or I don't know if discoveries is the right word, kind of developments, uh, my personal developments um, of the first project. Yeah, absolutely. I can definitely see how it carries on from questions in the first project. And I absolutely look forward to reading. So, uh, Professor Andrew Lude, thank you so much for joining and talking. Yeah, thanks so much for the invitation.